imagine that you're the transportation czar for a major American urban area, whether it's Washington or San Francisco Bay Area or Portland or Atlanta or whatever. Well, here's some basic facts. First of all, the time that your people waste sitting in traffic has doubled in the last 20 years or more. Uh, second of all, your highways are crumbling, your bridges are falling down. And if you're in a city that has a, trans a rail transit system that's more than 30 years old, that's crumbling too. And there's no money. There's, well, there's not enough money for maintaining highways. There's no money for rehabilitating your rail system. Uh, it's, there's just no money, and that's why things are breaking down. So, what's the answer? What do you do? What's your top priority? Well, if you're a typical American urban area, your top priority is to build a multi-billion dollar rail line. Uh, even when you don't have enough money to maintain the one you've got. I think there's something wrong with that, and I'm going to tell you why that's not why our transportation system isn't working today. Um, it's a general principle of the Cato Institute that government does not work. I'm not quite that radical. I think government usually doesn't work, but government can work, and there have been examples of government working. By working, I mean operating efficiently, uh, producing the things that it's intended to produce uh, without a lot of unintended consequences. There are very specific circumstances in which government can work, and Peter Drucker outlined those circumstances in his book, The New Realities. He says, there are stringent constraints on a government activity it must remain narrowly focused on specific performance, and it must not be continued once it has attained its objective. Uh, in addition, I would add that the incentives of the government agency have to be aligned with its mission, because if it has incentives to do this, and it has a mission to do that, it's going to follow its incentives. It's not going to follow the mission. You're going to get mission creep, and that's really the source of mission creep, is when the incentives are different from the mission. Now, Drucker goes on to say that these rules admit of no violation. The moment they're not being followed, the activity becomes politicized. That invariably means fast generation of the quality of the service. And that is really what has happened to federal transportation policy in the last 50 years. It was an, ex it's an excellent example of a government system that did work when it was narrowly focused, when the incentives were right, and when the mission was being carried out. But as soon as the mission was accomplished, the, the objectives just became a, a, a blur, and the incentives disappeared, and it became purely pork barrel, almost purely pork barrel. Now, of course, I'm talking about the interstate highway system. Uh, 52 years ago, Congress passed the legislation creating the interstate highway system and dedicating federal gas taxes and other highway user fees to that system. So, so there was a clear mission to build 40,000 miles of four or more lane limited access highways throughout the United States. <coughs> there were plain incentives, too. The incentives were the money for this is coming out of gas taxes. So if you build a highway to nowhere and no one uses it, then they're not going to generate many gas taxes for that. So your incentive is not to build a highway for purely pork, it's to build the highway that people will use so that you'll get the gas taxes to pay for that road. Plus, the 
the mission was being carried out mainly by the states. It was decentralized. And the states had a, a particular uh, incentive too, because there was a strict formula for distributing the federal money to the states. It was based on the number of road miles in the states, and the land area, and the population. It was hard for a state to change it. You aren't really going to go out and change your land area or your population. And so uh, the states knew how much they were going to get, and they spent the money pretty much cost-effectively. Now, in addition, and this wasn't an intentional thing, but in addition, the system was designed by engineers. The goal of the engineers who designed the interstate highway system, and who actually began designing it before World War II, the number one goal was safety. The number two goal was efficient flows of transportation, uh, as long as it didn't violate the number one goal. Interstate highways are the safest roads we have. Urban interstates are far safer than almost any form of mechanized urban transportation uh, in, in the United States. So safety was the number one goal, and then efficiency. Now, in 1950, when the Bureau of Public Roads was putting together his proposal for the interstate highway system that Congress eventually passed. They called the, together some experts, including an economist from the University of Michigan named Shory Peterson. And he said, it's critically important that you keep engineers in charge of your transportation system. He said, it is in the character for the engineer to be mainly concerned not with broad matters of the public interest, but with specific relations between road types and traffic conditions. In other words, engineers measured things. They measured things like how much congestion is there, how smooth is the pavement, how many accidents are there. If the pavement's not smooth enough, which is uh, hard on vehicles, if there's too many accidents, if there's too much congestion, then you need to change your configuration, add capacity, whatever. Uh, now, Shory Peterson went on to say that control of road improvements through judging its relationship to the general welfare is as debatable, as devoid of dependable benchmarks, as deciding the proper peacetime expenditure of net for national defense or the right quantity and quality of public education. Controlled in this way, in other words, by trying to maximize the general welfare as opposed to just saying we're going to maximize safety and efficiency, Highway projects are peculiar, peculiarly subject to pork barrel political grabbing. So here we have Peter Drucker saying you have to have a specific mission or it's going to turn into pork barrel. We have Shorty Peterson saying uh, it needs to be narrowly defined to things like efficiency and safety. You can't talk about the general welfare or it's going to turn into pork barrel. Well, the interstate highway system, I would argue, was a great success. It was publicly funded, but it was funded out of user fees. 100% of the money came out of money paid by the people who used it. And it consists of 1% of the road miles in the United States and carries 25% of passenger miles and more than 25% of highway freight ton miles in the United States. So 1% carrying more than 25%, that would have to be considered a tremendous success. Now, that doesn't mean it was without controversy. There were mainly controversies over interstate highways in the cities. And that's not the fault of the engineers. The engineers designed the interstate highways to bypass the cities. And when they presented their proposal to Congress in 1955, it was narrowly defeated. And the cities came and said, we did not support this measure because we want our share of the pork. 
And the urban planners came and said, we did not support this measure because we see highways as a way of improving, revitalizing cities, of clearing out slums. So Congress rewrote the bill and directed many of the highways that were going to go around cities to be through the cities instead. And that was passed in 1956. Uh, within 10, 15 years, there was a huge revolt against those urban highways. People said they were destroying neighborhoods, they were splitting up neighborhoods, they were doing all kinds of damage to neighborhoods. And the urban planners said, oh, it's all the fault of those evil engineers, even though it was the planners who wanted it that way in the first place. Now, that, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Really, the big flaw with the interstate highway system was there was no indexing in the user fees. User fees were cents per, per gallon. That meant if you drove a more fuel-efficient car, as people started to do after gas prices went up, you paid fewer cents per mile. And so even though you're driving just as many miles, using the highways just as much, you're not paying as much per mile, so there was not enough money. Plus, with the general inflation of the 70s, uh, you saw construction costs actually increase faster than other costs, and the gas taxes were not keeping up. So the interstate highway system that was supposed to be completed in 12 years actually took 25 years to complete and cost a lot more uh, after adjust or if you just count nominal dollars because of inflation. The system was essentially done in about 1990, and then the next big flaw here, the flaw that was identified by Peter, Peter Drucker, what happens when you've accomplished your mission? It's supposed to sunset. And Congress originally wrote the bill so that it would sunset every six, seven, six years and then it would be renewed if it needed to be renewed. Well, here we are. Uh, by 1990, there's, uh, they're collecting 18 cents a gallon in gasoline taxes, and that's equal to uh, tens of billions of dollars a year. And Congress didn't want to see it sunset. They wanted to have the money. They wanted to spend it. So uh, the mission of building the interstate highways was accomplished there was no longer any focus, and so they ended up turning it, heavily politicizing it. The first thing that happened was they started diverting money away from highways to other uses. And the first diversion took place in 1973, when Congress said, if you are a city and you have an interstate highway proposal that's controversial and you want to cancel it, you don't have to give up the money. You can keep the money and not build the interstate highway but you can only spend the money on transit capital improvements. Okay, so cities like Portland and Sacramento and Boston wanted to cancel freeways, so then you have to figure out, well, how are you gonna spend that? We can buy hundreds of buses with the cost of a freeway, but we don't have enough money to operate the buses and we can't use the money for operating buses. We can only use it for capital improvements. So they hit upon a new idea. It was called light rail. Light rail, was supposed to be a great form of transit, an improvement over streetcars, but the real reason why they picked it was not because it was efficient, but because it was expensive, because they could absorb all of those federal highway dollars. And if you're mayor of Portland, if you're mayor of Sacramento, you don't want to be, you don't want to have to answer the charge that you let money get away, Portland's money get away because you canceled the freeway until some other city got that money. You wanted to keep the money in your city so that some contractor would get it, some buddy would get a job out of that money, and uh, you would not be accused of losing federal jobs, federal money, and so on. 
So they picked light rail as a technology because it was expensive, because it would absorb all those monies, and they started building light rail lines in Portland and, and Sacramento and Boston and other cities with the canceled freeway money. Uh, the law allowing cities to cancel freeway dollars was, was repealed in 1982. But then, in that year, Congress raised the gas tax by five cents and dedicated two cents of that increase to transit. So it's a new diversion from highways to transit. The money's coming out of gas taxes, it's coming out of the pockets of auto drivers. But now two cents, and from then on, 40% of all gas tax increases goes to transit, goes to people who aren't driving cars uh, at the moment that they're on the transit. And, uh, and that's the way the federal funding for transit has been accomplished since, since that time. Uh, the other thing that happened in the 1982 law was that they started earmarking money. But uh, remember the highway money was allocated to the states on a specific formula basis. So each state knew how much they were going to get. The formulas for transit were much weaker. They didn't consider, for example, how many transit riders, or this is only a very minor consideration, how many transit riders a city carried. Instead, it was things like how many miles of rail do you have? If you have more miles of rail, you get more money. And there was a particular program called New Starts that had no formula at all. In other words, the default formula was if you come in with the biggest, wackiest, most expensive proposal, you get the most money. So again, we have the federal dollars out here. They're a common pool resource. If you reach in and grab the most, you get more than your peer cities. So it became an, it created an incentive for cities all over the country to start planning light rail or other expensive rail systems. Light rail became the uh, mode of choice in most cities. Here it's heavy rail or subways or elevators. Um, but light rail became the mode of choice in Portland and Denver and Salt Lake City and Sacramento and Dallas and uh, uh, several other, Baltimore, uh, Buffalo, and many other cities. 18 cities have light rail. There's only six other cities that have rail transit in the United States. Um, <clears throat> light rail has several flaws. I don't want to get into a de debate about light rail, but let me just point out four things. First of all, it costs five times as much to build a mile of light rail as it does to build a freeway lane mile. And that freeway lane mile carries five times as many people per day as that mile of light rail track. So do the math. Light rail is 25%, 25 times less cost effective than freeways at moving people. Now the neat thing about buses is that they can use those freeway lanes too. They can share the right of way with cars and trucks, which means they share the expense of the right of way with cars and trucks. Light rail, the right of way, is dedicated exclusively to the transit riders who are using it, and very few people are using it. Portland, my hometown, less than 1% of all travel is by light rail. And that's actually high for most cities that have light rail. There's only a couple cities with more than 1% of travel is by light rail. The uh, light rail is so expensive that cities that build it invariably have a financial crisis at some time or another and they have to cut back on their bus service. So you look at transit ridership and you actually find that if ridership does not absolutely decline, which it has done in almost half the cities that have built rail transit, it is increasing slower than it was before they started building rail transit. In Portland, my hometown, 
Uh, 10% of all commuters took transit to work in 1980. Then they built light rail, now it's 7.5%. Big, big achievement. Um, light rail, the average light rail line in America consumes more energy than the average SUV per passenger mile. Uh, the average light rail line in America is three times more dangerous to pedestrians and auto drivers than the average bus. Uh, you're three times more likely to get killed per passenger mile carried by a light rail train than you are by a bus. Why is that? Because a uh, light rail vehicle weighs 100,000 pounds, and they run them in trains with two and three vehicles, or sometimes four. So you've got a 200,000 pound vehicle, whereas a bus is about 25,000 pounds. You're not as likely to get hurt hit by a 25,000 pound vehicle. And finally, crime. Light rail is also far more susceptible to crime because the bus driver is in the same compartment as the passengers monitoring what's going on in the bus. In a light rail vehicle, the bus driver's got his own or her own separate insulated compartment, and so you're three to five times more likely to get robbed, assaulted, or raped on a light rail train than you are on the bus in the United States. Per passenger mile, but if you're on the train, then you're one of those passenger miles. Well, the next big change was 1991. I said the interstate highway system was essentially complete in 1990. So in 1991, Congress passed a new reauthorization of federal transportation funding called ICE-T. Transferred the authority over all of our transportation decisions from engineers to planners. It explicitly started making the general welfare, rather than things like safety and efficiency, the main criteria. Planners said, well, we can take into account things that the engineers are going to ignore, like air pollution and land use impacts and community, sense of community. Uh, you know, we're going to give people a sense of community, whereas those freeways take away a sense of community. So the things that the highway system was built for, for relieving congestion, for uh, moving people efficiently, for providing for safety, they were all forgotten. And what's happened is we now are building systems that take congestion have as congestion has almost no impact on our decisions. Uh, Alan Vasarsky looked at uh, the Washington State planning system. Congestion is only as a 10% weight in, in the decision of where they're going to spend their transportation money. Safety is almost irrelevant. Uh, we see cities doing things that make streets demonstrably more dangerous. They're converting one-way streets to two-way streets, for example, and getting, when we converted Cities converted two-way streets to one-way streets. They reduced traffic accidents by 30%. Now we're converting them back, and we're seeing a 30% rise in traffic accidents. Safety is irrelevant to the planners. They use air quality as an excuse for a lot of what they're doing, but most of their plans are actually making air quality worse. In the last 40 years, we've tried two approaches to reducing air pollution. One is the engineering approach of reducing pollution at the tailpipe with catalytic converters and things like that. And the other is the planning approach with trying to change people's behavior by encouraging people to live in tight, denser communities, by encouraging people to ride transit. That approach has been totally unsuccessful. No city in America has reduced per capita driving by even 1%. The engineering approach has been wildly successful. Uh, even though we drive three times as many miles as we did 30 years ago, we only produce 30% as much air pollution as we did 30 years ago. Uh, so the question that we have to ask is, 
did Congress impose these planning requirements where cities are doing perpetual transportation planning, writing a new plan every five years. As soon as the plan is done, they have to start over and write another one. Did Congress impose this as a cover for the pork barreling earmarks that they wanted to include in each successive transportation bill? The earmarks, of course, have grown exponentially. Or did Congress in 1991, the year the Soviet Union fell, did Congress really think that centralized planning was going to make for better transportation systems, for better service transportation? I can't believe that Congress really thought that it was, but if Congress thought that, they were wrong, and I hope we can fix that. I have four quick recommendations, and then I'll let Ron go. Uh, first of all, we need to repeal all those planning requirements. That's, uh, I think it's called Section 5901 of the Title 49 of the transportation law. Uh, cities and states should not be required to do endless uh, transportation planning. Maybe it's 5903. It's 5903, isn't it? Endless state and metropolitan area transportation planning. Uh, they should just be required to figure out uh, what they want to do with their share of the federal dollars. Second, create a specific mission for how those dollars should be spent. If the mission is not to build a new super interstate highway system, at least it should be to maximize transportation safety and secondary only to safety to maximize transportation efficiency. Do you spend the money cost effectively on things that will move people the best way? Um, for transit, federal transit money, whether it comes out of gas taxes or any other money, should be distributed to cities solely based on a strict formula that makes transit ridership a very important part of that formula. So if you're a city and you decide to spend all your money on a rail transit line and it doesn't do much for transit ridership, you're not going to get much money in the future because you're going to glue it all in one big wad on rail transit. If you decide to spend it on modest, low-cost improvements that really can improve transit ridership, then you're going to get more money in the future. You're going to be able to out-compete against those cities that do things, spend their money stupidly. And finally, uh, we need to disconnect the federal highway money, federal transportation money, from air pollution. The 1991 ICT and the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments specifically said that cities have to take air pollution into account, but we end up seeing is them taking air pollution wrongly into account by doing the wrong thing. So let's just disconnect it from air pollution. The air quality tailpipe requirements are making air pollution go away, and that's all we need to do. I, uh, probably since the late 1990s, I've been to, invited to a lot of, to speak and be on a panel and a lot of uh, conferences and, and Symposiums on smart growth or sprawl or suburbanization or growth controls or zoning or things like that. And I'm usually there as the uh, kind of the conservative novelty act to give it a little bit of balance. And so, invariably, I'm on a panel that, you know, they do it pro con. And I'm treated with respect. It's, very, it's usually very amicable and we're civilized and everything like that. But invariably, I'm on a panel that's with somebody, often a planner or an architect who takes the, the smart growth of the new urbanist view, and, and they always have a slideshow. And the slideshow is always pictures of houses and neighborhoods. And there are two kinds of pictures. There are pretty pictures of, of houses and neighborhoods, and, and pictures of ugly houses and ugly neighborhoods. And so that person usually gets to go first, 
And so by the end of the, uh, of the presentation, the audience is convinced they all live in a pretty house and pretty neighborhood. And they're also convinced that, therefore, I must be the person who's going to get up there and defend ugly houses and ugly neighborhoods. <laughs> so it's a, it's a daunting challenge. But one of the things I discovered after going through all these slideshows year after year, and they all get to be pretty much the same, is that the communities whose virtues they extol uh, are places like Charleston, South Carolina, uh, Savannah, Georgia, Oakley, Mobile, uh, Georgetown, Old Town, Alexandria. Uh, traditional communities that, that are walkable, they have you know, light angle grids, uh, served by public transportation, and they also extol the virtues of a lot of the newer communities that in fact mimic these older communities, like Ion in the South Carolina suburbs is just a replication of old, old Charleston, uh, but the old 40s, slightly old Charleston. And uh, was Celebrate in Florida? So, so Celebration in Florida really uh, looks remarkably like a, a turn of the last century New Jersey beach resort. Uh, and so it was beginning to dawn on me that, that the virtuous communities that were cited as an example where all the communities were built prior to the existence of planners, prior to the existence of zoning, prior to the existence of building permits, building inspectors, and anything else. Uh, and yet, somehow, they managed to get it right without all this overweening public sector involvement and direction and guidance. <coughs> and uh, now, it's not to say that these communities were unplanned. They, they were, and, they were, and that the public sector had no involvement. But for the most part, they were planned by the builders, the developers, and the landowners in ways to maximize the value of the community. And the ways to maximize the value of the community that you're about to build is to build the most attractive community that you possibly can so that people are willing to pay lots of money to be there. <coughs> and so the consequence of this is you had relatively attractive communities. And in fact, all the ugly houses that they showed tended to be 1970s, 1960s tract houses that were in fact built in the era of zoning and planning and approvals and all that, building permits and all that sort of stuff. So it was suggesting that maybe there is a certain virtue uh, to the market, and maybe that the, the, the whole idea of planning hasn't really quite worked out to, to be what it was cranked up to. And in fact, much as I noticed, much of the imitative stuff uh, that we are sort of encouraged to build in the urbanist communities and have policies therefore are in fact very imitative of pre-zoning, pre-planning communities like the ones that I have described. So there, I think there's a lot to be said uh, for, for allowing more discretion uh, in the planning of communities, <clears throat> and, but we're seeing increasingly uh, that as communities begin to zone themselves and get worried about growth control, they're adopting strategies and plans that are wholly inconsistent with what people and buyers want, as opposed to what they think people should not necessarily want, but be, be limited to. Um, the, the average lot size of a, of a single family detached house in the United States, and it's pretty even, it varies a little bit around the country from, from region to region, is a third of an acre. Uh, yet, in, in virtually none of fast-growing northern Virginia uh, suburbs that are adopting growth controls, would you be allowed to build on anything that small? And in fact, increasingly, they're going to large lot zoning. I mean, this is the strategy of the planners now. <clears throat> so that it's a minimum of, of two acres or three acres, or in the case of distant Mountain County, 
you have zones of 5, 10, and 25 acres uh, to limit the size. So in fact, what you have now with passes for, 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 for at least suburban planning now, in fact, contributes to sprawl. And, and thanks to things like that and limits on building in, in Prince William County, is that you now have counties in West Virginia becoming part of the Washington metropolitan area. Not because the people that are moving there who, who work in the Washington area enjoy the rustic charm of those communities, but that's basically the only place that they can afford. And in fact, recognizing this, the early counties, the, the, right over the border counties in West Virginia, have now adopted for the first time zoning and growth controls, which has then kicked back development into the, uh, the next county over in West Virginia. Uh, at that pace, uh, Southern Ohio will be part of the Washington metropolitan <laughs> area uh, before, of course, they, they, they rezone there. Um, so I think there's a lot to be said for, for the logic of the market because I think the marketplace would often yield much denser development than, than the planners allow. Now, I think part of it is I don't really, I'm not that hard on planners. I don't think it's necessarily the planner's fault. Because planners are just, in the most part, bureaucrats or servants to the commissions that lead these metropolitan planning organizations. So essentially what you have is not so much a bureaucratic solution or sort of a, sort of a fussy technocratic solution, but basically political layouts of communities because all of these MPOs and, and, and transportation authorities are in fact governed by collections of regionally drawn uh, elected officials were very often former elected officials. Yes, sir? Who convinces those people to, to have these plans? Who are they, but, but they, but aren't the planners the ones who well, are involved in yeah, If you're an elected official, yeah. I mean, basically, you know, as people have joked, um, uh, you know, most, of the, most of the people that are opposed to the growth are people who just moved into the community and, and want to be the last person in. You know, they moved into a place that has a certain rustic charm, and I don't want everybody else to have it, because other people may ruin that. Um, but, uh, and, 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 you know, people who elect officials uh, get reelected by accommodating the interests of the people already there, not the people who aren't there yet. People aren't there yet, don't know who they are yet, and aren't allowed to vote even if they knew who they were. So you, so you have that vote. Uh, and they also have, uh, getting on one of these commissions is also, a reward for loyal service. A lot of the, a lot of the uh, people that get on these planning commissions and zoning boards and, and so on tend to be people who have either been voted out of office or have simply retired from office. And, um, and they continue, and they, they've been appointed by the former political leaders, they're all part of the club, so it tends to still remain fairly politicized. And, and they tend also to not be particularly well qualified in, in, in the technical issues that they've been asked to resolve, namely how do you relieve congestion? Uh, how, do you, how do you plan a particular community? And so they tend to respond with political solutions, they're still elected officials, and so what do they think the voters want, or, 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 or what do the uh, influential constituencies in the communities want? And that, I think, more than anything else, often uh, determines how, how these things are. And I, just a couple of examples from the community where I live. I live in Fredericksburg, Virginia. The city itself is about 20,000. What passes for the metropolitan area is like maybe 80,000. It tends to be fairly spread out. But we have a metropolitan planning organization. And it has you know, professional planners that are on it. I don't know what they do. But and then there's also a board. And the mayor that was, the Fredericksburg mayor who was defeated in the last election was given as a consolation prize, they put him on the planning commission. 
another person who retired after a dozen years of, of loyal service was also put on the board. And that particular latter one was a local mortician uh, who had been an elected official and just got tired of being an elected official, but he still wanted to keep his hands in things, and he wanted the honorary, honorary title of being a commissioner, so he was appointed on it. And he did such things as uh, his active in civil rights, and uh, Fredericksburg is trying to build a slavery museum. It doesn't exist yet, probably never will, but he was instrumental in getting, and if you were at the last Cato event where I spoke, Notice he was very instrumental in getting the the the, 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 the Metropolitan Technic Commission to allocate to authorize funding for the construction of a replica slave ship that would go into it. Now this was out of transportation money. The argument was, which ultimately won the day, was well, it wasn't a real ship, but it was a ship, and a ship is a form of transportation therefore intelligent. So this is still on the books. Now, right now, for those budget people, it's been authorized but not appropriated. But of course, once the museum is built and there's a place to put it, then presumably they will do this. He also was disturbed by the absence of a red light at the diner where he had breakfast every morning. He was a little bit concerned that he thought where he parked his car was not safe to walk. And so he, uh, he got red light there. And now kind of traffic is slowed on, on a street that otherwise moved simply because that was something that he thought was important. He was a commissioner, and so you're a commissioner, that's what you get. <coughs> um, and now we have sort of a new set of commissioners. I think he's no longer before, but we have a new set, and they're essentially drawn from the same pool. And Fredericksburg gone very much into the whole corporate welfare tourism sort of thing. And so they're now about to get this big water park. Uh, on, on part of the city, but, but the water park is served by a road, which I might add is the only uncongested road in the, in the Castle Square metropolitan area there. And the, the part of the deal was that the road will be widened to accommodate the expected tourists that, that come, notwithstanding the fact that even after the tourist things come, this still will be a relatively uncongested road. And they also, the, 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 they would also like a new, new interchange to, to serve this new water park that's being built, a new interchange on I-95, which the last time they, they, they did a detailed study of it would cost about half a billion dollars. Now, that was half a billion dollars 10 years ago, so presumably it'd be much more expensive now. And so this is what our Metropolitan Planning Organization is putting its money into, uh, because they can, uh, because these are political solutions and these are things that are important to, to the commissioners and their pals and the influential constituencies that operate them. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and again, I think this is less a problem with the actual people who do the planning rather than the people who, who lead them, guide them, and, and, and direct what they do and what they don't do. Um, let me go back to the point that Randall made, and so finish up with this, is that um, you're, unlike many other things, the, the, the federal law uh, and I don't know whether it was, it was, it was it the 1990 ICE-T that ma mandated MPOs, or was it before that, John? 1991. Huh? 91 was ICE-T. Yeah, no, but, but no, the, the, the MPOs preceded. MPOs were back. So, and then you yeah. preceded that, okay. Yeah. It, is that yeah. not only are you required to have them, but you're required to spend a certain amount of money on them, or at least the minimum amount of money. So, so, so you can't say, well, we'll have a planner, we'll just have one, and we'll tuck it over there. Uh, you, you know, a, a, a fixed percentage of, of the federal money that comes to any particular state that has to be distributed to, to NPOs. And, and you sort of think about this, you're required to have this planner who, who, who based on experience and all the things that Randall said, appears to be, for these planning commissions, appears to be of somewhat marginal value. 
yet not only is it mandated, but the money is there to spend it on. And then you think about all sort of the other things that would be of interest to, to let's say, traffic issues and people using the transportation system, in which federal government is totally indifferent to. It has no mandates. For example, it's not required to have state inspection, and a number of states have no inspection. Whatsoever, South Carolina, for example, uh, your car can be as unsafe, and you would think these would certainly be issues of, of some interest and concern uh, to to an overweening federal federal system uh, if it was looking to prioritize things. Not that I'm su suggesting that you would, but why planners? Why not that? And there's a whole range of things that you're not required to do. You're, you're a, you can have deficient bridges uh, without violating federal law. They would certainly give you money encouraging you to do so. There isn't any mandate to do so. So the, so the planners sort of are, are sort, of, sort of in a very special situation in terms of any of the professions and services provided within the transportation system, which then gets back to, you know, is this something that people have decided that we really need or something that's, that's politically influential and politically, politically useful? As a consequence, we get them. Uh, and increasingly being sensitive to, to lobbying and pressure groups, and, and some of which are more effective than others. And sort of the, the, the Transportation Commission report that came out last year certainly realized, uh, came out last week, certainly underscores the influence of certain, certain lobbying groups. Essentially, the pressure on the planning groups, whether on the politicians or the technocrats, is increasingly toward transit solutions, the, the most costly ones to serve the least number of people. And increasingly, they're going in that direction. And we can see the new transportation authority, uh, one of the first priorities uh, that ha it has adopted is the light rail line that will go down Columbia Pike and Arlington. Uh, and, and so that will disrupt whatever mobility already is, is already impaired on, on a relatively uh, uh, narrow road that's, that, that still serves commuters coming into the district. Uh, but it will serve not so much for mobility, but rather the goal of what they presume is economic development. The idea is that there's a trolley there, people will want to go to the restaurants because they can ride the trolley from restaurant to restaurant, stuff like that, and that'll throw some juice off the place. So this has to do with, you know, what is our measure of performance? What is the objective uh, that we have? What is an NPO supposed to do? What are the planners are supposed to achieve? That's not really clear. And so the consequence is that whatever the commissioners think they should appear, <laughs> or, 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 or support or propose, essentially tends to become the, uh, uh, the key agenda uh, for that. Uh, I don't know how we, we deal with that. Um, it's, it's very difficult. Uh, one of the proposals that we've been pushing is, uh, and, and has been, been pushed in, in, in a number of states, is to have clear, quantifiable performance goals. You mentioned the Peter Drucker. Um, and, and one of the things that we've been arguing for are, are goals of quantitative congestion relief subject to a limited amount of budget. <coughs> and if an NPO or if a state DOT was actually held accountable for, what con for the reality of congestion relief as opposed to the pseudo-congestion relief, would they actually waste substantial portions of their budget on things that nobody would use and would probably impair mobility in the road? I think that's the only solution. I don't think we're going to ever convince Congress to change that particular law. What we need are, are additional laws and, and mechanisms in, in, in which, like, like the Constitution, <clears throat> impose some limits and restraints on others where are not subject to any limits and restraints. Uh, let me close with that. I guess we have some time to take some questions. Oh, by the way, we, uh, 
I, I, I didn't bring extra copies of this book, so since, since I'm just a guest here, I didn't want to argue, you know, <coughs> compete with the Cato book that's being handed out. Nonetheless, uh, let me mention the Heritage Foundation has a book on transportation. We do have a chapter on planning, uh, public planning versus, versus the market solution. And anybody who wants to leave me with their card uh, before you go, I would be happy to put one in the 